0: So just to briefly introduce Dr. Scalia, when I received his CV of 132 pages, I didn't know where to start, so I will just keep it extremely brief and summarize it with a couple lines that will briefly make note of his more than 300 publications, the fact that he is a physician in chief here at Shock Trauma, and uh, his basically been a big visionary in the way trauma uh, is managed, in the way the regionalization of it has occurred, as well as with uh, critical care um, throughout the state. Um, He's been a mentor to many, and um, it is an honor to have him. So thank you, Dr. Scalia. All right, late as usual. And we what we'll do is we'll take about 45 minutes and we'll go through this and we're going to use, we're going to bounce around a little bit. In my mind, I think that uh, resuscitation is resuscitation. I don't think it really makes so much difference whether you're resuscitating septic shock or hemorrhagic shock or shock, neurogenic shock, it didn't really shock. So I, I think that everything that's bad sort of fits onto this slide someplace. People come in, and they're really, really sick. And if we use trauma as the example, they come in, they have a pH of 6.8. You do what you do. They go to the ICU. They never get well. They all die in 24 hours of fulminant acute multiple organ failure in my mind. They never resuscitate. When Rick Dutton was here, he would say they died from too much shock. Then there are the the people on the other side of the slide, and they come in and they're not very sick. And uh, they get four, six units of blood. They're young. They go to the ICU. They're on the ventilator for two days. We say they have respiratory failure, but they don't. They have a little bit of organ dysfunction. If you don't do something stupid, 100% of those people get well. But the people in the middle are more interesting because those are the people that develop um, sequential multiple organ failure, and it's the topic of a completely different talk. But I will tell you that maybe, recently, maybe, we have the ability to alter outcome. But for, if you look at that, once the, that neurohumoral cascade is turned on, Those people develop sequential organ failure. They do it in the same order every time. And our ability to alter outcome is frankly small. If you look at even the survival from ARDS, however you want to define that, the outcome's not any better now than it was 20 years ago. You can define it differently. You can say that those people that were on the ventilator for two days had respiratory failure, but they really didn't. And if you use hemorrhage as a a model, we have these these classes of hemorrhage, and we say that there are sequential physiologic changes that go along with each class of hemorrhage from one to four. Uh, If you want an exercise one day, go back and try to find the data that actually supports this. I've been looking for 30 years, still haven't found it. And so it would be convenient if this was true. It's mostly not true. And even if it was true, if you look at class 1 hemorrhage, so that's 15%, right, so 750 cc's of blood loss, that's essentially clinically undetectable. If you look at class 2 shock, which is anxiety Uh, heart rate 105, blood pressure 102, 110 over 80, and you ask yourself what percentage of patients come in that have that profile, it's 100% because you would be tachycardic tachypnic, and a little anxious if you have just been hit by a bus. It's an anxiety-provoking experience. And so these are not very helpful in my mind. And uh, if you wait until the patient is moribund to react to their hemorrhage or their sepsis or their whatever, then your chances of, of making them in a different place on that first slide goes way, way down. Now, is there ways to do it? It turns out that, in fact, there are physiologic changes that happen with hemorrhage, and this was data that is now twenty five years old that we generated in I guess it was my lab back in the days when I sort of did that and we looked at a model of progressive hemorrhage in a whole animal and asked a very simple question what happens because you would think that we would have answered that by now, but it turned out we we hadn 't really done that and we didn't we did it in a model of something like 5% blood loss every three minutes. You know, if you have a blood pressure of 40 and a hole here and a hole here, it doesn't take Einstein to make the diagnosis of hemorrhagic shock. So we wanted to do something that wasn't quite as profound in terms of hemorrhage. And what we found out were all the um, vital signs that we say change with hemorrhage that slide before. They, they were all lies. None of them actually happened. It happened occasionally. If you looked at the coefficient of linear regression for heart rate, it was about 0.7, I think. So, yeah, sometimes it happened, sometimes it didn't. Sometimes the dogs got tachycardic, sometimes they got bradycardic, sometimes their heart rate didn't change. The only thing that was reliable was central venous oxygen saturation. So oxygen extraction ratio went up. And it's various models here of whether that's mixed or central venous oxygen saturation, whether the dogs, because we did this with the dogs anesthetized and with the dogs awake. And it turned out it it starts falling after 3%, and the linear regression coefficient here is about as straight of L line as you can get. So that seems like that works. Now, that does require sampling central venous blood, what we've never answered is, does peripheral blood act the same way? Could you just get a venous sample out of the IV when you put it in? Maybe, maybe not. If you're looking for a more global measure, at least in hemorrhage, acidosis. So if you look at base deficit, and that's always the answer on the MCAP or anything if you're going to go to, if you get banished to the desert island of trauma and you only get to take one machine with you what do you take? You take the blood gas analyzer because that's probably the most effective measure of depth of shock is it true in sepsis? It's probably true in, in sepsis as well and this is data from Vanderbilt that just demonstrated the step up in mortality this is base deficit on admission now, how about using urine output? We always say that urine output's a very good uh, marker of depth of shock. It turns out that's a lie, too. This is some work from uh, uh, a different animal model of hemorrhage, again. And it, if you shock an animal 15% of their total circulating blood volume, with this is now rapid uh, hemorrhage, the the. Animal does just what the book says they're supposed to do. They hang on to salt and water They develop oliguria. But at 21, 27, 35, and 40%, the animals all develop acute salt-wasting nephropathy. They get high output renal failure, and their urine output is no different than that of the control animals. And so I, you know, in my mind, when I see somebody in the early in their course, if they're oliguric, I think that that's means that they're probably malperfused, and if they're not allegoric, they're either okay or they're not okay. But I don't think that urine output actually answers that. Question, now there are are, um, vascular beds that are more sensitive, and and we have known for a long time that uh, the GI mucosa is a very good way because that is an area that, where perfusion drops very quickly. And um, it's been, until recently, not possible to utilize that as a bed to measure. You know, you could look, if you were good enough with an ultrasound probe and you could look at superior mesenteric artery blood flow, that would probably be a pretty good way to look at hemorrhage. Neil Garrison has 1,000 papers looking at diameter of jejunal blood vessels as uh, both a marker of shock and resuscitation. But since it's unlikely that we're going to open the patient's bellies, take the mesentery of their small bowel out, and look at it under a high-powered microscope in the ICU or the TRU, that's probably not going to be too practical. But it turns out that, that oral mucosa works pretty well, too. And so there was a sub- sublingual capnometer that was developed a while ago. That's what it looks like. And it measures um, sublingual CO2, which is a f- which is related to mucosal pH. Turns out that that actually works. This is more data from us a long time ago showing that... Um, there is sequential drop in gastric pH with hemorrhage. It turned out the same was true in the small bowel and the colon. And uh, we'll come back to this thought later, but I think the point here is that there um, there are ways to look at perfusion, but blood pressure and pulse rate are just not very good measures of much of anything. All right, so now you've decided that this patient is in shock, and regardless of their their blood pressure or their pulse rate, now you, need, you want to do something about it. So how are you going to resuscitate the patient? Well, there's been sort of this sea change over the last few years about what do you use and how much of it do you use, and when do you think you're done. Well, now, for, if we're going to use injury again, or hemorrhage as the model, it it turns out that we've known for 55 years that crystalloid or um, aggressive resuscitation is bad for you. This is data from 1958. This is from my hero, Jerry Shafton, which he did in the animal labs at the Kings County Hospital. And Dr. Shafton did this uh, incredibly elegant thing where he looked at hemorrhage with an open blood vessel, the saphenous artery, and, and exposed the groin in a dog and then shocked the dog and then resuscitated the dog in various ways and sopped up the blood with a 4 by 4 and weighed it. That's how he measured blood loss. And you can see that As soon as you start transfusing the dog, in this case, as soon as you raise the dog's blood pressure, hemorrhage gets much worse. And that created a, we didn't bother to read that article, nor did we ever believe it because we never changed our practice. But there were then, this was followed by 50 or 75 manuscripts that all said the same thing. If you raise blood pressure to normal, you, you dislodge the hemostatic clot that is formed, and you create this cycle of fluid resuscitation, knocking the clot off, recurrent hypotension, more fluid, and you, go, you develop coagulopathy. You go round and round and round. And I, I have a distinct memory, because apparently I didn't read the literature either, of we had this idea you couldn't operate on somebody for hemorrhagic shock until they were resuscitated. And and I have this I'm sure that we killed ten or twenty patients that I can actually probably remember in Brooklyn because we wouldn't take them to the operating room because their blood pressure was sixty. We gave them blood or we gave them fluid, their blood pressure went up and we said, Okay, now it's time to go and their blood pressure fell. And we went round and round and round. They never got out of the emergency department, not too smart. There are now two randomized prospective trials on this for trauma. The first is the Houston study. This is 750 patients with penetrating trauma that got randomized in the field to no fluid. I mean, like heparin lock versus fluid to raise the blood pressure to 100. There's no difference between the groups. You can see the, um, the demographics, but there was better survival in the absolutely no fluid group. Here's the data. And you can see that um, the people that got resuscitation got a liter of fluid in the field. They got another uh, you know, 1,500 cc's of fluid. And they didn't really give them no fluid, but they didn't give them a hell of a lot of fluid. And that um, the survival was better in the no fluid group. There, the complication rate, while it did not reach statistically statistical significance certainly looks very favorable to delayed resuscitation. The complications weren't that um, common, and we've relearned this. Yet last night we sent an abstract to the Western trauma that essentially says, if you look at the amount of crystalloid you get, you can tell who's going to get ARDS or not get ARDS. This is the second prospective randomized trial. It's ours. It's Rick Dutton's. This is blunt and penetrating trauma. This is fluid to a blood pressure of 70 versus uh, a blood pressure of 100. And we thought that this was – we did this in a smarter way, we thought, which was we said that you're going to stay hypotensive. not It doesn't make any sense to do it until you go to the operating room. It should, you should leave the blood pressure low until you get hemostasis, right? That, that's what makes sense. And this was blunt and penetrating trauma. I have to tell you, the first time we took a patient with a pelvic fracture and a blood that got randomized to blood pressure 70 to the angiogram suite, and we let their blood pressure stay 70 for three and a half hours, it was a little anxiety provoking. But it turned out that um, there was no advantage to, to raising their blood pressure at all. We uh, and there'll be this will be a, a little bit more of a theme here. We uh, we took a, a group of patients with a predicted mortality of thirty percent, and we did the power calculations. So we're, we're going to need two hundred and fifty patients. We said we could do that. That's a couple of years, right? That's not that hard. <laughs> And then after 110 patients, we did an interim analysis and saw that good for patients, bad for science, the predicted mortality was 30%. The actual mortality was 8%. So we said, well, how many patients do we now need to do? And the answer was 2,000. We said 2,000, probably not. And so we just capped the study there and, and wrote it. Now you got to give them something, right? So what do you give them? Well, once again, we've known for a long time that crystalloid is bad for you. This is data from the uh, basic science lab. Peter Ree and, and David Burris did this at Ushus. And um, this is an animal model of hemorrhage in an hour of shock. And if you look at markers of inflammation, the animals that get crystalloid, turn their immune systems on, their inflammatory systems, at a very, very, very high level. The interesting thing was, you see here, the second worst inflammation were the animals that didn't even have shock. They just got the crystalloid. Crystalloid fluid, probably not so good for you. When we looked at um, how fast and how much, perhaps not surprising, a lot of fluid very fast was worse than less fluid, not so fast. Once again, crystalloid uh, didn't look so good. And if you look at the other fluids, yeah, albumin didn't look that good either. And so all of these fluids, dextran, all of these fluids... Um, turned on the immune system. Now, what about using hypertonic fluid to resuscitate? Well, hypertonic, hyperoncotic fluid gives you rapid restoration of preload with a relatively small volume. It allows you to hemodilute, which is probably good for peripheral oxygen delivery. There's better better microvascular flow. There are some electrolyte abnormalities. There's a bunch of data on this. This is the first of... Uh, some of the randomized series in pre-hospital hypotension to 7.5% hypertonic saline with dextran versus ringers. And it turned out the blood pressure was higher if you got hypertonic saline. Okay. The um, complications were less if you got hypertonic saline. And while the survival was the same, there was... Um, The people that had emergency surgery had better survival if they got hypertonic, hyperoncotic saline. Sort of interesting because the the first author on this study, Ken Maddox, celebrated because we raised blood pressure right up until the time he was the senior author on the Houston study that that said raising blood pressure wasn't that good an idea. Go figure. And now there is, this is a meta-analysis Charlie Wade did, looking at um, hypertonic saline versus standard of care in brain injury, and you kind of can go through this quickly and say nothing. In blunt trauma, maybe a little bit better. Um, 24-hour and and discharge survival, not so much, though, you know, kind of, sort of. You get very close when you, when you ask people, discharge survival in people with, with bad brain injury. Why have we not been able to prove that hypertonic saline in the field works? Because we use, maybe we use a big garbage can of patients, right? We take everybody with a coma score less than eight because you've got to use something to randomize them in the field. Now you've got some people that are just drunk, and you've got some people that have lethal brain injuries, and you've got some people that don't have such bad brain injuries, it's hard to to select the patients that might actually help. This is another uh, model of hemorrhagic shock where we looked at those various fluids, and, and, and we showed that the mesenteric circulation was, again, sort of the circulation on the bubble and if you looked at flow in the superior mesenteric artery as a percentage of her aortic flow, that there was um, significant advantages to hypertonic saline. There was more complete systemic recovery with a smaller volume of fluid, better mesenteric resuscitation. And so it's possible, again, that hypertonic fluid might be good for you. Now, we come back and look at these, this sublingual capnometry. This is data from Max Harry Weil, and so I'll. since the surgical fellows know the answer to this, you're not allowed to answer. Who knows who Max Harry Weil was? Yeah, you guys are old. You, you're supposed to know. <laughs> Nobody teaches you guys history anymore. I don't know what the hell is. Max Harry Weil was one of three people that founded the Society for Critical Care Medicine. SCCM is SCCM because it was founded by an anesthesiologist, Peter Saffer, a surgeon, Bill Shoemaker, and an internist, Max Harry Wilde. Dr. Wilde died two years ago, maybe, two years ago. Unbelievably smart man. I got to spend some time with him. This is and he was much smarter than us. Where was his ICU where he did all his work? Palm Springs, California. (laughs) Come on now. The Desert Medical Center. It's a great place. So he looks in the ICU at sublingual PCO2 versus lactate. His gold standard looks pretty good. We then looked at this, at sublingual capnometry, in the emergency department and showed once again... Minimal, moderate, and severe blood loss. No difference in blood pressure or heart rate. There's the theme here. But that whereas in severe uh, severe hemorrhage, the confidence intervals are very wide, it was very good at saying you weren't bleeding. And the receiver-operator characteristic curves were pretty good. We then looked at it in the intensive care unit in a group of patients, and we looked at um, receiver-operator characteristic curves for subliminal catnometry versus lactator-based deficit, it was really a very good test and could predict survivors from non-survivors really fairly early. And transfusions, ICU stay. It was really a very good test. The problem with the capnometer is that... Um, I forget. guess it was Hutchinson made it. And uh, as they were ready to to really roll this out, there was a problem with pseudomonas on the catheter tips. So they uh, stopped making it. They tell me they're going to start making it again. I don't know whether that's really true or not. But it's a pretty, it's a nice little gizmo that will allow you, you know, sort of point of care testing. You put the probe under the tongue, you get a you get an answer. There are other things that will work. This is um, transcutaneous oxygen saturation, which is a pretty good test. Also, and, and this is, again, severe shock, moderate shock, mild, no shock. Um, it's not so good, unlike the sublingual catenometer. It was good on the severe end, not as good, not so much difference as here. But the ability to look at these beds is coming now. How long will it take to actually refine this technology? I don't know. But we're getting there. All right. You're in the intensive care unit, and now you want to decide is the patient resuscitated. And this is work from Shoemaker, the second of the of those two people. And Dr. Shoemaker, this is in the days before Computers where we actually had to analyze data by ourselves. We used to carry around folders with pieces of paper in it and write the data down. I know this is a foreign concept to you guys, but we actually did it. We didn't have anybody type it in. And over a series of 10 years, Dr. Shoemaker demonstrated that the same thing was true. In the resuscitation bay as in the ICU, which were vital signs were terrible at predicting how people were doing. And he, Dr. Shoemaker, who is still alive and um, I am told physically not doing as well, but mentally is doing great. Developed these set of preferred values dr shoemaker was is the world 's nicest man, I think, and he preferred he wouldn 't tell you what to do he would prefer, however, that you would um, drive cardiac performance above normal in order to allow patients to do better, but most importantly. Commonly followed vital signs were normal, even in the non-survivors, until they were ready to die. And then they had a sudden cardiovascular collapse that was predictable, if you actually looked at the, the values. And the, the most important values in, sho- in the Shoemaker way of doing things were index of 4.5, delivery index of 600, and consumption index of 170. And he looked at this time after time after time in a zillion different patients in, in the surgical intensive care unit and demonstrated that this was true. Well, it got it got a little bit complicated, and this was what I did in the early part of my career, because I got trained by Lou DelGercio and John Savino, who... Uh, were huge proponents, and Dr. Shoemaker was a huge influence in my life. I will digress for a second and tell you another Shoemaker story. I get asked to uh, to go to the California Trauma Symposium and talk. I go and I see, Sh- and there's Dr. Shoemaker, and I've never met him. I said, "This is I got to go meet Dr. Shoemaker," and I'm running over to meet th- to meet him, and Somebody grabs you and says, I got to talk to you. I say, okay, blah, blah, blah. I look up, he's gone. I say, oh, shit, I missed my chance to meet you. I'm looking all over. I can't see him. I'm looking around and he. I feel this. And I turn around and there he is. And he says, oh, my God, you're Tom Scalia. I've wanted to meet you for. <laughs> really? <laughs> you're Dr. Shoemaker. I couldn't call him by his first name. Um, that was. A bunch of years ago, I still remember that. So we looked at this in older people, and we hypothesized, for lack of a better term, that high-risk geriatric trauma patients had the same characteristics. They had this, they had normal vital signs, but poor cardiovascular performance. And we looked at this in in a series of patients, and these are patients that got monitoring late And these are people that got monitoring early, believing that a period of non-hypotensive shock, if you were 65 years or older, was bad for you. And the the groups are not important. It has to do with initial cardiac output. One is low. One and A are low. Two and B are, are moderately bad. And C is not so bad. And what we demonstrated was that survival was terrible if you put the monitoring devices in at six hours. We could see that they were in cardiogenic shock. We could watch them die, but died they did. Half of them died. They were on this side of the slide. They never got well. They died in 24 hours. Half of them were in the middle of the slide. They developed sequential organ failure, And they died at two weeks, but they died. If you put it in at two hours, half of the patients were in in frank cardiogenic shock. Half of them lived. And it didn't matter how sick you were when you got there. It was how quickly your doctors and nurses realized you were ill and fixed you. So this, I wasn't smart enough to think of it in 91, I guess, when we published this. But the concept of early goal-directed therapy or time-sensitive disease becomes incredibly important here. That's what this is about. And you could look at the non-survivors. The non-survivors had normal cardiac outputs that stayed normal, and the survivors had normal cardiac outputs that got higher. This led us to ask a series of questions about adequacy of resuscitation. Now, this is a bunch of young patients that came in in profound hemorrhagic shock, mean um, transfusion requirements in the first 12 hours, 17 units. And you could tell who was going to live and who was going to die at hour one when they got to the ICU. And the things that were statistically significant were pulmonary vascular resistance. The highest statistically significant were serum lactate and pulmonary vascular resistance. Oxygen delivery and venous oxygen saturation, For the reasons we've talked about before, were also statistically significant. And, you know, look at MAP 105, heart rate 104. They're normal. They're not so normal. And why is that? Well, I think that it's because we've taught you guys to think backwards. We've taught you to think that the left side of the heart is the important side of the heart, but it's not. The right side of the heart is the important side of the heart, and it is um, the one that is most affected by acute critical illness, because you take, I don't care whether they're in septic shock or cardiogenic shock or hemorrhagic shock, you take that patient and you put them on positive pressure ventilation. Their volumes are not so good. They have high catecholamine levels. Their pulmonary vascular resistance acutely goes up. You put them on catecholamines for their sepsis. Their PVR goes up. Now, the left heart pumps against pressure very well, right? I mean, what's your normal systemic vascular resistance? I won't ask because you guys won't know, and then I'll have to be disappointed in you. It's a high number, right? What's pulmonary vascular resistance? It's a low number. You acutely raise PVR. The right heart can't step up against an acute change in pressure. The right heart fails. The pericardium is intact. That's why 50 cc's of fluid gives you cardiac tamponade early. Over weeks, you can tolerate buildup of fluid, but acutely, the right heart fails if you increase fluid. So the right heart bulges. In an intact pericardium, the left heart fails from right heart failure. I think that I know, absolutely know that that's correct. And it's another one of the reasons why pressures are such bad measurements of preload. Because it is a relationship between cardiac output, squeeze, and volume. And we measure pressure... And use it as a surrogate for volume. But it's a terrible way to do this. This is now 20 years old. I think it was one of the greatest critical care papers that never got very much press. It's Larry Diebel and Scott Dolcefsky. And they looked at, back in the days when you could put that little wiggly yellow thing in without people calling you a name, they looked at pressures versus performance, And they asked a very simple question. I mean, because why do you give somebody fluid in the ICU? It's an inotrope. Fluid's an inotrope, and that's how you should use it. And so they asked a very simple question. If we give you fluid, will your cardiac output go up, right? Patients got low cardiac output. You give them fluid to raise cardiac output. And they found out that pressure was a terrible way to predict whether they were going to get any bang out of their volume buck. It was about a 50-50 shot. And so this did not correlate with ejection fraction, which is really what you wanted to know. Now, what do you use then? You can't use pressures and you can't use vital signs and... The Shoemaker numbers were never validated. Well, I, I think that we, we walked through this um, discussion. These are 48 patients you can see in the trauma ICU. We asked the question, did, did achieving Shoemaker criteria predict survival? The answer was no. Everybody. We could drive everybody's cardiac output up. We then asked, suppose we change our endpoints because we went back and reviewed the data and said, if lactate is so important, suppose we change the way we do this since we can get everybody's cardiac output up. Suppose we just get it up high enough to clear their lactate to normal. Then what happens? Well, it turned out that a bunch of people never met these hyperdynamic criteria anymore, but they still cleared their lactate to normal. And that's the curve of survival versus lactate clearance. If you cleared your lactate in 24 hours, you had 100% survival. The longer it took you to clear your lactate to normal, the lower your survival was. And it was sort of interesting because... There were two groups that were working on this, us in Brooklyn and the guys here, and we came to the same conclusion. Driving resuscitation to normalize lactate improves survival. Now, suppose the lactate machine is broken. And you say, oh, fine, I'll just use base deficit, or I'll use anion gap. And we looked at this, and we said, okay, Now you make your decision about what you're going to do. And just as you get ready to write the order, these days type the order in, um, you get ready to write the order, the lactate machine works, and you get your lactate back. How often would you make the wrong decision based on the gold standard of serum lactate? And it turned out that it was about half the time. Anion gap and base deficit would take you to the wrong decision about 50% of the time. And over 48 hours, that changed. What did that mean? I think what it means is there is some complicated, probably at the level of the kidney, inability to regulate acid-base homeostasis. And as people get better and the kidney recovers, those... um, relationships recouple over the course of about two days. But I don't think you can use base deficit in the intensive care unit, at least not early on. And so all of this drives us to a new way of doing business because in the trauma world we enter the crack wars in the late 1980s and we begin to understand that there's a different way of doing business And what we learned is that you have to sequence therapy, and this will make sense hopefully in just a minute. And the principles that we finally derived here is that only blood loss kills early and that acidosis, coagulopathy, and hypothermia become self-fulfilling. Now, I had a... Chairman, who was and had him, he was immensely forward-thinking. And the first time we presented a case where we did an abbreviated laparotomy, he got up and said he was embarrassed, and he would just fire us all and, and hire some real surgeons. It didn't work out quite the way he wanted it to. And over the course of about ten years, um, our you know our senior people kind of came to our rescue. And surgical critical care became a discipline, you know, up until my generation is the first group of surgeons, at least, that have done critical care and trauma for their whole career. So it allowed us to codify some thought processes. And we have changed resuscitation based on all of this. So the history we have talked about is aggressive crystalloid hyperdynamic resuscitation, and then damage control. And what we have found out is that that leads to abdominal compartment syndrome. This is Fred Moore's algorithm. It's unimportant. But looking at the um, various oxygen delivery targets, it doesn't matter. You clear your lactate to normal at the same amount of time, but if you drive cardiac output higher, you use more crystalloid in blood. And the incidence of intraabdominal hypertension, abdominal compartment syndrome, multiple organ failure, and death go way up. So probably not a very good idea. And we've now ushered in this era of what we are calling damage control resuscitation. And what we are trying to prevent is this diatrogenic crystalloid injury, crystalloids, dilutional hypothermia, and ongoing shock. Now, what is the data to support this? The first data came from here, and this is John Como's data that looked at a year's worth of blood usage here. And essentially what we found out, well, first we found out that we gave 5,311 units of blood in a year here. I, I wouldn't have thought it was quite that high, but that's what we did. And what we found out was that if you added it up, by the time you got to the end of it, everybody that got a unit, for every unit of blood that a person got, they got a unit of plasma and a unit of platelets. And so this was, this was very illuminating to Dr. Dutton and me. And we said, well, if that's true, why don't we give the plasma earlier? So we said, okay, let's do that. And we coined this term hemostatic resuscitation. And so you synthesize this, you control hemorrhage, you limit crystalloid, you allow hypotension to persist until you control the bleeding, and you use blood early. It's the TRU. This is uh, 10 years ago. We started putting fresh-thawed plasma in the TRU so that it was immediately available, and it turned out that this wasn't so stupid. This is data from the military that demonstrates, at least in Iraq, the closer you get to -to one-to-one, the better the survival. There were a number of ICU projects that looked at it coming up with the same conclusion. There were two large prospective trials. This is John Holcomb's data presented at the American Surgical uh, published in the Annals of Surgery which is about as good as a a journalist you get in surgery. And this is a retrospective review of transfused patients, 16 level 1 centers. You can see it. 1,500 patients and you can see that the, that the high platelets, high plasma group had the best survival. So, a lot of platelets, a lot of plasma. And if you got platelets and plasma early, you, if you looked at those who died, they didn't die of hemorrhage, they died of brain injury. There's the 24 hour survival curve, it persisted at 30 days relatively powerful here's the problem if the ratio of plasma and platelets is so important why then these are 16 level 1 trauma centers here's one center with the same ratio had a mortality of 40 this center had a mortality of 70% first why is it so different secondly if the plasma platelet if the plasma and platelets are so important why, do, why is there such variability in survival? Don't know. This was the second trial. It's ours. This is Grant Pochicchio's, also presented at the American Surgical, published in the Annals of Surgery, looking at 800 patients enrolled here. We'll quickly go through this. Guess what? You were sicker if you got transfused. But the impact of red cells and plasma on mortality just wasn't there and one-to-one did not predict survival at all. And when we looked at the massive transfusion subgroup, it was unimportant. Why is that? It's going to be the same thing as the, as the fluid, no fluid study. People didn't die. Good for, you know, good for patients, bad for science. There's only 6% mortality in people with massive transfusion, And the majority of the early deaths were due to lethal brain injury, or they were DOA. So how are you going to change that? By giving them plasma. You're not going to. This is still controversial. This was two years ago at the AAST. There were two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve manuscripts on the subject presented. Six that said that one-to-one were good, and six that said that one-to-one didn't actually matter. We are now trying to answer that question because we have a, a multi-institutional randomized prospective trial. Uh, we are almost there. I think we're going to finish um, early, probably in the next six months, enrolling people, and we'll see what that shows. And I think what, what the, the answer is on this slide. When you think about massive transfusion, you say that that's 10 units of blood, and that's who gets you in. But 10 units of blood in 24 hours isn't really a lot of blood. So, if I give you a unit of blood an hour for 24 hours, you've got massive transfusion, but it's not a lot of blood. On the other hand, if I start giving you blood and plasma at at the time of arrival, that's different, right? And so, when we broke it out and said, let's look at the patients that needed types, that got old blood within an hour. There was a, in fact, very significant survival advantage to one to one. That's probably the answer. And this whole concept of trauma induced coagulopathy is just, or the coagulopathy of critical illness, is really much more complicated than we had thought. So, where, where does it take us? Well, you know, everything ends in the New England Journal. And so, this is Rivers, early goal directed therapy. Here's the algorithm. It's not very, frankly, very sophisticated, is it? SVO two and MAP and hemoglobin. But first it got published in New England a Journal of Medicine, and you can count on one hand the number of critical care papers published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the goal directed therapy was the survival went to 60 days for an advantage. So what is the principle here? The principle we have talked about time and time again in the last 45 minutes has to do with time-related disease. It is a matter of early recognition, understanding physiology, and driving therapy in a goal-directed way that allows you to keep the patients on the organ dysfunction side and out of the fulminant organ failure, sequential multiple organ failure. And so normally measured vital signs underestimate the depth of shock and adequacy of resuscitation. I still believe that to date... Serum lactate is the best measure of the adequacy of resuscitation. And every time we invite somebody to come talk and they want to talk about that, they always get up and say, well, I know that Tom Scalia said lactate, but it's just a number, blah, 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 blah. And I always put one of the fellows in the audience and say, you ask them this question, okay? So they raise their hand and they say, well, what do you use? And they go, well, we use serum lactate too. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What exactly did you say a little louder? And I would be delighted to find something that is better. And, in fact, it is just a number, but it's a pretty good number. And until we can demonstrate something that is going to be more accurate, I would, I would contend that the ability to clear lactate to normal is still the single best predictor of adequacy of resuscitation and um, marker of survival. Okay, I thank you for your attention.